There's a man that came home unexpectedly uh, early one day from a business trip, and as he walked into his apartment, he smelled cigar smoke. S smelled some cigar smoke. He started to get a little bit upset about it. He started screaming at his wife, Where is he? Where is he? And he starts tearing this apartment apart. He goes through every nook and cranny they can find, and he can't find anyone. And out of frustration, he looks down the fire escape, and at the bottom of the fire escape, there's walking a guy down the sidewalk smoking a cigar. In his rage, he goes over and he grabs the refrigerator, he puts it on his shoulders, he walks over to the window and he drops this thing down. The guy on the street looks up and, well, then the scene shifts. And they're standing before the pearly gates. And Peter asked the first man, he said, how did you get here? First guy says, well, you know, I don't know. I was walking down the sidewalk one day. I'm enjoying life, smoking a cigar. I heard some commotion. I looked up and the next thing I see, it looked like a refrigerator. And that was it. And I, that, that was all I remember. He goes, okay, stand over there. He goes to the second guy. He said, well, how, how did you get here? The second guy says, well, I came home early from a business trip and, and I smelled cigar smoke and, and in my rage I, I grabbed the refrigerator and I took it over to the window and I felt this pain in my chest but I dropped the refrigerator and, well, and that's all I remember. And I, I, then I think that's how I got here. So he goes, okay, go ahead and stand over there. He goes to the third guy and says, and how did you get here? He goes, I don't have the faintest idea. The last thing I remember, I was minding my own business, sitting in a refrigerator, smoking a cigar. <laughs> you know, and I, and I thought about that story, and I thought, you know, what's the point? And uh, there is one, actually. Um, the point is, I know I've said this before, and I'll probably say this as many times as necessary to reiterate this point. And the point is this, that our emotions or our feelings are often misleading and are not always an accurate barometer to measure truth. And the, you know, the man sitting in the refrigerator may have thought he was okay, may have felt what he was doing was right, may not even have had a, a, an understanding of right or wrong, but he really wasn't in the position to judge himself because he had lost some of his objectivity. And uh, in our last session, we began to take a look at a section of 1 Peter that will give us uh, what I'm calling hope beyond immaturity. And as we look at that, there was one thing that continues to come up all throughout the scripture, and, uh, and that is simply this, that God encourages us, in fact, he commands us to grow up. He says to grow up. And uh, the problem that is, is raised in my own mind as I consider this admonition to grow up, this command of God that he wants me to grow up, to grow up from being a child of God into a man of God. The problem that I wrestle with is, how do I know if I'm really growing up? How do I measure that objectively? How do I know if I'm making any progress? But before we can even address that question, there's a deeper and more important question that needs to be addressed. And that's the question of, what are some of the reasons we don't grow? What are some reasons why we don't grow? And I want to start with uh, the physical world around us, hopefully in order to better understand spiritual truth. But I thought about at least three reasons why things don't grow. And I'm sure there's probably more, but these are the three that I want to share. And the first one is, you know, sometimes things don't grow because they're dead. Right? I mean, growth assumes life. Now bear with me for a minute because this is really critical. Sometimes things don't grow because they're dead. Have you ever had a plant around your house that was dead? Anybody? I, I, I kill them all the time. <laughs> I try the best I can, but they die. And see, now here's something I learned about things that don't grow. If they're dead, they don't grow. Now, you can take that plant that you have in your yard, and you can put it in a bigger pot, because sometimes we think that you know the pot's too small, and that's why it needs to expand and grow. So we'll put it in a bigger pot. So you can move that plant into a bigger pot. You can take that plant out of the sunny side of the yard and maybe it was supposed to be in the shady side of the yard and you move it over to the shady side of the yard or you can take a shady plant and you can, we put it in the shade that was supposed to be in the sun and you move it over in the sun and you know, it's just not growing. And you can feed it miracle Grow, and you can feed it fertilizer or other plant food and you can water it and you can talk to it, you can sing to it. You can do all the things that you think will help that thing to grow. But here's what I've learned about dead stuff. None of that helps. If it's dead, it's dead, and it don't grow. And I say, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with anything? It has a lot to do with something as far as our spiritual life is concerned. 
And the reality of our spiritual life is much like a physical life around us, and that is if we are dead spiritually, we won't grow. And what happens is this. Just like taking that plant from one pot and put it in the other, or taking that plant from the backyard and put it in the front yard, or taking something and giving it miracle grow, whatever you want to do, if it's dead, it won't grow. And see, what happens in the lives of people from a spiritual standpoint is we take dead people spiritually and we tell them that all they need to do is change their environment and somehow they'll come to life. And so we take people who are going to one church and they're not growing there and we say maybe you should go to another church and they go to that church and they don't grow there either. Or we take people who have never been to church at all and we tell them, hey, you know what's missing in your life is you need to go to church. So we take people who are in the bars and the clubs and hanging out and doing all the things they're doing and we say, you know what's missing in your life is you need to grow spiritually. So we're going to take you from there and we're going to transplant you here. And then what happens is they don't grow. The only thing that grows in their life is a sense of frustration that, you know what, I changed my environment, but I haven't changed my condition at all, and I'm frustrated by all of it, and it's not for me, and I'm just going to go back to where I came from because at least I was having fun there. But the problem that we have is, is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to take dead people spiritually, and even though they're alive physically, transplant them somewhere else and think that somehow that's going to take care of the root problem, which is what? They are dead. I say, well, that's pretty, pretty dramatic. I mean, are you sure that they're dead? I say, well, if you've got your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, you know, the Bible tells us in several places that there's none righteous, no, not one, that all of us have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God, whatever that means, and we'll discuss it as we go through it. But one thing that's really interesting in it is that the Bible calls us dead and we need to take a look at that. In Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 3. See, before we can start talking about growth, we need to make sure that we're alive spiritually. And the question I have to ask myself is, am I alive spiritually or am I dead spiritually? And the Bible gives some very good insight into that problem. And look what he says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. He's talking to those who at one time in their life were exactly as I'm discussing. They're people that are dead spiritually. Though they may be alive physically, they are dead spiritually. Now he's talking to them in a whole new light, saying that, you know what, remember the days when you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You didn't understand spiritual things. You didn't hunger for spiritual things. You didn't desire to know about spiritual things. And when spiritual things were even talked to you, you, were, you, know, you didn't understand it and you didn't care to understand it. It was like the light was out and nobody was home. It says, and you were dead. And you walked accordingly. You lived that way because you were dead. Dead people live like dead people. Zombies walk around like zombies. I mean, you ever see the monster horror movies? They I mean, they were zombies. That's the way they walk because that's who they are. It says, and you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's the Apostle Paul writing the, these words saying, you know what, I can identify with you because there was a time in my life where I was alive physically, but I was dead spiritually. And I was no different than you. And yet, somehow or another, something happened in my life to take this dead person spiritually and to wake me up. And there's some, uh, uh, some miraculous event that took place in his life. That he no longer considered himself dead like the rest of the world, but now he was alive spiritually. And it's interesting as we go through this, maybe to illustrate it, there was a few years back, I was driving down Interstate 15. And it was right out at Lake Elsinore, and I was going down for a business meeting. I had a company car at the time, and it was early in the morning. I had a meeting in Escondido. And if you've ever driven on that road, there's not a whole lot of traffic. And I had a really nice company car. And it was one of those cars that, if you remember the old commercial, they used to put the windows up and you couldn't hear anything. It was like being in a library. It was a Mercedes 300E. It was a sweet machine. And I'm driving down the freeway, and I'm just... Like in a library, going 110 miles an hour. I didn't even know it at the time. I didn't know I was going 110 because it didn't feel like it. It was nice. I don't recommend this, but I'm just telling you a story. 
So I'm driving, I look, and I catch myself and going, man, this thing's going 110 miles an hour. Now, fortunately, this didn't happen. But if it had happened, and an officer of the law would have said, that's a sweet machine, would you pull it over? I would have pulled it over. And he would have said to me, do you realize how fast you were going? And what would I have said? No. Was I going fast? It sure didn't feel like it. Have you ever driven one of these? It didn't feel like it. And in fact, officer, I can recall at least one or two or three other people went right by me. I wasn't going very fast, and in fact, there were people that were going faster than me. What do you think of that? <laughs> now, how many of you, be honest for a second, raise your hands, have ever gotten a ticket? Raise your hand. Oh my gosh, this is going to get easier and easier. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> would you give me 10 minutes before you leave today to get ahead of you? Anyway, uh, <laughs> but if you've ever gotten a ticket, how does those little lines that I just shared work? Not too well. They don't work very good. You know, crying even doesn't work. Oh, good. Well, see, you're, you're you know, I, well, see, now I, I can understand that. Now, see, that's a good one, though. Uh, but I, I just, I couldn't do it. I might, though, if I was going 110 and got pulled over. I'd be like, <laughs> can you ride it for 80? Um, now, the question is, why was I guilty why were you all guilty? <laughs> why, why would I be guilty? Because what? I violated the law. There's a standard that was set. You know, 65 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour. I violated that standard by quite a bit. 45 increments. Right? I'm guilty because I violated that set standard. Now, I'm thinking, here's a problem that we have. I can fight it I can justify it, I can certainly rationalize it, or I can just give up and say I'm guilty. I was wrong, I'm guilty, there's no sense going to court because I'm going to lose, I just need to pay the price, right? Isn't that interesting? Because God sets our standard and his objective standard is the laws that he has that we find written in this book called the Bible. And he'll set the standard or the laws and then he'll hold us accountable to those standards like 65 miles an hour. Well, God sets different standards and some of his standards are, for example, uh, thou shalt not lie. There's a standard. Now, <laughs> already knowing that you all speed, <laughs> I'm going to assume, well, let's just raise hands again. How many of you have ever told a lie? And the people that are oh, two hands, it's a two-handed guy. Good, it's good. <laughs> now there's a few people that was like, no, no, you, they kept their hands down. They're lying now. So we got everybody. <laughs> we got them all one time. Just swooped them right up. All right. So you now what? Now see the question is, what makes a person a speeder? You went over the speed limit. How many times do you have to go over the speed limit to be a speeder? Once. How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Once? This finger. <laughs> Once? All right. How many of you ever taken something that didn't belong to you because you liked it? Now, forget it. We're getting a little dangerous here. All right. But some of you have. And that's called coveting. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. You are a coveter. And a thief. <laughs> right? I don't care if it's a pencil from work. If it's not yours, you took it. I don't care if it's a jersey from a high school, football, baseball, basketball, whatever you do. I don't care if it's something that wasn't yours, it didn't belong to you, and you took it, you stole it, you're a thief. You're a liar. You're a thief. Well, let me see. How many here ever cheated on their income tax? <laughs> this is so scary right now. I found out you're a bunch of speeders. You're a bunch of liars. You're a bunch of cheats, and you're a bunch of thieves. I'm going to move back a couple steps. <laughs> now, why is that so important to understand? Because God says this. If you break one of his laws, you are guilty 
before God. And because you are guilty before God, you are condemned before God. And because you are condemned before God, you are dead spiritually. And the Bible says that you are on your way to hell. Physically, you're alive. Spiritually, you're condemned. And there's a price that needs to be paid. And the question is, either you'll pay it yourself, forever separated by God in hell, or you'll accept the fact that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Our choice is very simple. We either pay the price ourselves, or we accept God's payment in full in the death of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see in that passage in Ephesians, we read this in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for it's by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that none of us would boast. And we are created, or for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow. We assume a lot of things when we get together and we study the Bible. The biggest assumption that we all make is simply this that every person that we're talking to is alive spiritually and can understand what God is saying. Probably the worst thing that we can do. So every now and then I like to remind ourselves that, you know what, if you're dead spiritually, then you know all you've done is like that dead plant. You've taken yourself from one position to another, from one place to the other, and, and, and you're still dead. And you are condemned before God. And if you're here today or listening, may I recommend that you resolve that issue right now where you are between you and God. And all you need to do is this. Confess that what he says is right. Confession means to agree with God. Like agreeing with the officer. I'm busted. I'm guilty. I'm wrong. God, you've used your laws to show me that I fall short. You've used your laws to show me that I need a Savior. You've used your laws to show me that I'm busted, that I'm guilty. There's no hope for me other than your mercy and your love. And I agree with you. And therefore, I repent, which means I change my mind. And specifically, we, change our, we change our mind about what? About the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Some of us have been told he's a great teacher. Some of us have been told he's a great philosopher. Some of us have been told he's been a great man. Some of us have even been told that he is God. But you know what? But I still in my mind, I wrestled with, you know what? There's got to be another way to get to heaven other than just by believing in Jesus. And so what we need to do is we repent from that frame of mind that says there's other ways to get there. All roads lead to Rome. All roads lead to heaven. No, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to get to the Father but through me. And so we repent. We say, God, forgive me for my wrongs that I've committed. And I believe what you say about Jesus Christ. I confess or agree that I'm guilty. I repent from this lifestyle. I repent from what I thought about Jesus and believe now with all of my heart that he's the only way to get to heaven. And then the last thing I do is I accept this gift that you have to offer. The Bible says if we do that, that we become children of God to those who believe in his name. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away. All things become new. As the passage here in Ephesians says, God has taken a dead person spiritually and raised him up so that now we are alive spiritually. And so you need to deal with that in your own life and in your own way, but it's just a matter of a simple prayer of faith. God, I believe that for the first time. I've never understood how guilty I am before you. I've never understood how a price has to be paid and that you paid it in the person of Christ. And I believe that and I accept that and I love you for the God that you are and for the forgiveness that I now find. Thank you. Amen. It's as simple as that. And it's a prayer that you can pray as you sit there or as you're driving in a car or whatever it is or wherever you want to do it, but you can get right with God. And the Bible says that you will then come alive spiritually. And all these things that we're talking about all of a sudden will make sense to you. That's why some people don't grow, because some people are still dead. The second reason people don't grow is because of what? A lack of nutrition. A lack of nutrition. 
you can, you know, there, there's some of you saying, but you know what, Chuck, I believe in Jesus Christ. I put my faith and trust in Him. I prayed that prayer a number of years ago. And in fact, there was a time where I felt like I was really growing and I was going forward, but now I don't really feel that way anymore. I don't sense that I'm growing at all. In fact, I sense that, you know, I'm just kind of like blah. May I suggest that maybe you're just, you know, you're dying spiritually of a lack of nutrition. See, I mean, that'll happen to anything physically. If you don't feed it, you don't water it, you don't give it stuff to grow, and you, know, you don't give it sunlight, it's going to die. And if we don't eat physically, we're going to die. And spiritually, we need to eat as well. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, the answer to our problem as far as a lack of nutrition is found, 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 1. Verse 1 through 3 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, gal, hypocrisy, envy, all slander, like newborn babes, there you go, alive spiritually, a child of God, a baby in Christ, whatever you want to call it, you need to long for the pure milk of the Word that what? That by it you will grow in respect to your salvation. A reason a lot of us aren't growing is that we don't have a hunger for the Word of God that we need to take into our system so that we can grow in respect to salvation. And look what it says in verse 3. Now this is only for those who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Isn't that great? If you are still dead spiritually, you can read the Bible forever and ever and ever, amen, and you will never grow at all. Because you need first steps first. You need to taste the kindness of God and His salvation, and now you are alive, and God will use His Word to cause growth in your life. The third reason that we don't grow is what? Lack of exercise. Get a little flabby, a little paunchy, you know, uh, it's old, the, the, the old thing where, you know, my chest is now falling into my drawers. You know, we just kind of like, you know, I got that chest of drawer disease. Um, you know, and we're just kind of like flabby, you know. We're not growing spiritually because, hey, we lack nutrition, which we need to take in the Word of God, but we're also lacking exercise, and that is that we're not putting into practice the things that we've learned. And in Hebrews 5, it says the reason that some of us, you know, are still babies and still need to be fed milk is because you haven't practiced, you haven't lived what you've already learned. You need to exercise it. So ridiculous. We've got people that will buy billions of dollars worth of exercise equipment and videos and tapes and diets and all the rest of that stuff, and they'll have all this knowledge, and they'll go, but I still am out of shape. Well, you need to take the thing out of the closet and use it. An ab roller won't roll an ab if it's sitting by itself in a garage with no ab attached to an ab roller. It just doesn't happen. We bought every stupid thing you could imagine for exercise. Just come by our house on a garage sale weekend and you can pick yourself up a deal. We got great intentions. It's just you got to use them. And sometimes they hurt. And they cause sweat. I don't mind. But not everybody in our household likes sweat. In fact, when I walk through at the end of a run, I guarantee you none of them like it. There have been times I don't even like me. You know what I'm saying? Whoa. Is that me? But the point is, we don't grow if we're dead. We don't grow if we lack nutrition. And we don't grow if we lack exercise. And so as we go through this, you need to ask yourself the question then, how are we going to measure growth objectively? Have you ever felt stronger? Weights don't lie. I remember, man, we used to, you know, when I, when I was playing ball and you're competing with other guys, you'd be like, oh yeah, man, I'm getting stronger. And they'd say, well, let me see you do some benches. And they'd stick on, you know, 250 or 300 and you'd be like, yeah, spot me. <laughs> I felt stronger, but I just wasn't as strong as I thought. Chin-ups don't lie. Push-ups don't lie, if you're doing them right. If you're stronger, you'll be able to measure it objectively. Now people say, but I feel thinner. Then why is the scale saying when you get on it, one at a time, please? I know this is dangerous with all you, all you criminals out here. I mean, you know, I, may, I may say something you don't like, and who knows what will happen to me. Thou shalt not murder. I just want to plant that thought, too. But who cares? I'm already guilty of almost all the others. Um, no, and it's, yeah, and it's not a list of things to accomplish, by the way. Uh, 
But you know, and, you know, and you say, but I feel faster. Well, a stopwatch doesn't lie. You're either faster or you're not. And sometimes, fortunately, God doesn't use us on a comparative basis to see whether we've grown or not, which I'm grateful for. I learned a lesson, and our younger daughter learned a lesson when she ran a track meet when she got to the finals for the Century League, and everybody there was fast. And she came in second place instead of first place, and she had won every other race before that, and she came in second, the gal beat her. And she was all discouraged. Said, yeah, but you know what? You ran your best time you ever ran. Yeah, but not compared to so-and-so. Well, you know what? That doesn't matter. You ran your best time. Stopwatch doesn't lie. It's objective. It's truth. But I feel like I'm sober, officer. Blood alcohol tests don't lie. You may feel a whole bunch of things when you're in that state. But sober probably isn't one of them. So how do we measure this? Spiritual growth, like physical growth, must be measured against a set standard. Well, fortunately, God gives us a standard. And thank God he doesn't measure us against one another, but he has a set standard that he uses. So it doesn't matter how I'm growing compared to you, and it doesn't matter how you're growing compared to the person sitting next to you. The only thing that matters is whether you're growing or not compared to this standard, which we find in the Word of God in the Bible. And if you've got your Bibles, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll look at this list of things that God says we can use to measure up whether or not we are growing uh, spiritually. In 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 8 through 12. And we're going to see some checkpoints for maturity. And what we need to do is look at this as objective evidence, not subjective, not based on feelings. It's objective evidence. And measure yourself to what God says. Am I growing spiritually? Well, I'll know in a second. To sum it all up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you have been called for that very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who means to love life and seek good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And as we go through this passage, we find out that the Word of God, it says in Psalm 119, 105, the Word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Meaning simply this, that God's Word helps me to see where God has brought me from. He helps me to see where I am currently right now in this progression of growth. And He also points the way and says, but now here's where I want to take you. That's where you were, forgetting what lies behind. I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3. I forget where I came from. I now see where I am, and I now see where God is leading me or where he wants me to go. And that's the growth process that we're talking about. So as I look at this, I begin to compare my life or this growth process to whether or not I'm actually making any progress at all. And as we go through this, he labels them or names them one at a time. We see the first one is to be harmonious. To be harmonious, we talked a little bit about last time, it simply means to be of one mind. To be of one mind. You know, immature people are people that don't get along with other people because they're different. Whether their color of the skin is different, uh, their gender is different, uh, their ways of doing things are different. Immature people don't get along with other people just because they're not like us. God says, you know what, if that's you, grow up. Grow up. God's created us differently for different reasons, and I love the picture of heaven when we look at the book of Revelation that it says from every tribe and color and race and creed and tongue, we're all going to be in heaven together, and it's going to be a testimony to the fact that God loves diversity. We're not all the same. We never will be the same. It would be a boring world if everybody was like one another. We're different. Grow up if you don't get along with people that are different than you. That's all he's saying. He's given us different gifts. He's put us in the same body. He's given all different members, but one body and one head. And we need to recognize one thing. That is that Jesus Christ is Lord of every person that puts their faith and trust in him. And we are all members of his body and we're gifted differently by him. And we are to be harmonious. We're to get along with people that are different than us even when we don't always agree. I like what I read not too long ago about D.L. Moody. Uh, he had a, a guy come to him complaining about his evangelism techniques. The guy came to him and said, Hey, you know what? I really don't like the way that you do what you do. And Moody said, Well, you know what? Uh, I'm always open to listen and to learn. I'm ready for an improvement anytime. Why don't you share with me some of your techniques? And I'd love to hear what you have to say. The guy didn't have anything to say. He had nothing to offer other than criticism. 
And so Moody responded to him in a very compassionate, loving way and said, well, since you don't have any, I hope you don't mind if I keep using the ones that I have. Isn't that the case so often in the body of Christ, fellow believers? I don't have anything to offer you, but I just don't like what you're doing. We need to agree on what we're supposed to do and why we're supposed to do it. But I've come to this conclusion. How it gets done, there's going to have to be room to disagree agreeably. That's all. And if you don't want to help, get out of the way and don't try to stop it. Be harmonious. The second thing is, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. The word means to feel with. Turn with me in Romans for a second. Romans chapter 12. Look at verses 15 through 21. Be sympathetic. Romans 12, 15 through 21. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Boy, this sounds real familiar to what we're already talking about. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning calls upon his head. And do not, over, and do not, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Literally means, get, you know, feel with other people. Feelings aren't always wrong and they're not always deceptive, but we need to check it against objective truth. But there are times where we need to feel with one another. That's why I am convinced and always will be that the best thing can ever happen in a group that's a large group is to have smaller groups of people who meet together on a level where we can feel with one another. I can't rejoice with you if I don't know you. I can't weep with you if I don't know what's going on in your life. I can't be excited with you if you're promoted on your job or something good happens to you. I can't share in that blessing that God has shared with you if I don't know you. That's why we've got small groups. That's the whole purpose of those small groups. To be able to get intimately acquainted with one another so we can obey what the Scripture says and we can grow with each other. Weep with those who weep. Man, I'll tell you what, there's nothing like a group of people when you're going through a difficult time that'll come with you and just share with you and weep with you and be there to encourage you. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another. What? And all the more as we see the day drawing near that Jesus will come again. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. That's what we're told to do. When somebody has a baby, hey, be there for them. Give them meals. Be there and help out. Watch their other kids for them. When somebody's sick in a hospital, go visit them. When somebody's parent or somebody in your family has died, to be there for them, to comfort them, put your arms around them, tell them, I know you hurt and I love you and I care for you. I feel with you. When they're promoted, hey, thank God. But you know what? Here's what immature people do. It's not my problem. Here's what immature people do. You're promoted. you got a great job. God has blessed you materially. You're able to do something that they can't do. And what do they do? They're bitter. They're in competition. They're envious. They're angry. That's what immature people do. Immature people do that. Little kids at Christmas do that. Why didn't I get that? Because you're a wimp. You're a crybaby. We're not giving crybabies nothing. No, just kidding. But think about it. Sometimes that's what it's like. We go, but God, why didn't I get that? Because you can't handle that. You're a wimp. You're a crybaby. You're immature. I can't give you something for a mature person because you may hurt yourself with it. Right? Why doesn't God bless some of us financially? Because we can't handle it. We're screwing up the little that we already have. And he says, I'm not giving you more because you're going to hurt yourself with it. And you're saying, but I'd like to be hurt that way. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. Be sympathetic. Feel with the other person. Feel with what's going on. And if you're anything less than that, then I say, and God says, grow up. Number three, be brotherly. Be brotherly, affectionate. has to do with the idea of a friend. I like this. To be a friend, an affectionate friend, somebody who cares. And it goes beyond just caring in a group, but to almost be on, a, on an affectionate basis. Brotherly. So the word that we have here is the same word that we get for the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's a scary thought. 
haven't been there. But on the other hand, that's the, that's the idea. Not to be self-centered, not to be selfish. I love this. Some of us are really selfish when it comes to this stuff. I, I, got, this, I got this card from a friend. A story is told of two friends walking down an old train track discussing life. Unexpectedly, from around a blind corner, a speeding engine approached. With no thought for personal safety, one of the friends pushes the other aside, even though it meant facing death under the steel rims. When I hear that story, I think of you and I wonder, would I be able to find your wallet and all that wreckage? <laughs> That's not the kind of friends we're talking about. Friends, to be there. I like what Samuel Coleridge says, a friend is a sheltering tree. I like that. How good it feels, the hand of an old friend. Friends give comfort. Friends give strength. Friends are available when you're having a tough time. Friends are available to give godly counsel. We're talking about a man or woman who's chewing and meditating on the Word of God that can offer you God's insights into situations in your life. That's the kind of friend that we want. A friend who's consistent, a friend who loves at all times, a brother born for the day of adversity that's there for you when you're having trouble, that you can pick up the phone at any time, at any place, and call them and know that you're not disturbing them, not worried about people being over at their house or not worrying about what time of day or night it is. You can pick up a phone and call a friend and say, I need you now and know that that friend will be there. We had a guy in one of our Rams Bible studies who was that kind of friend to another man. And at 2.30 in the morning, his friend called him and said, you know, I'm, I, the, the more I drink, the soberer I get. And I'm troubled by what's going on in my life. And I need to talk to you about what's different about your life than mine. And I want to talk with you. And at 2.30 in the morning, this guy went over and he shared with him how this friend of his was dead spiritually and that needed to put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that night, that man was born again of God, as Jesus said. And he awoke spiritually at 2.30 in the morning. And he's been on fire and growing and loving the Lord ever since because he had a friend who would get up at 2.30 in the morning and say there's nothing more important in life than to be there for him who is the most obnoxious, arrogant punk that you'd ever want to be around. And that's his attitude toward people around him. And he was a, he's a drunkard and he beat his wife and he, he's abusive to his friends and he was a nasty guy. But God demonstrates his love for us and even when we're like that, he sent Christ to die for us. And that's the kind of friend that he had. Wow, that's good stuff. Fourth thing is be kind-hearted. To be kind-hearted. To be kind-hearted, it means to be compassionate. In Matthew 9, 36, the only other use of this word in the Scripture, we find this. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus felt compassion for them. They were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion and He was moved to action. That's growth, folks. When you can sense the needs in another person's life even before they say anything to you and you feel compassion and you move to action, that's growth. That's spiritual growth. I see what you don't even see in your own life, and I'm there for you to be there. In a book called Character Above All, I want to share a story with you that's just incredible about President Ronald Reagan. And his secretary, Peggy Noonan, wrote this piece, and she captures the essence of this, this character of his in just 22 pages, and this is what she writes. She concludes with the story about, in her own words, the almost Lincoln-like kindness that was another part of Reagan's character. Here's what she said. Everyone who worked with Reagan has a story about his kindness. Everyone that worked with him has a story about his kindness. Wouldn't it be wonderful the day that God calls you home to have a bunch of friends standing around your gravesite or around the house and reminiscing, and every one of them had a story about your kindness. And it just went on and on and on. Isn't that wonderful? But listen to what she says. In highlighting this quality in Reagan's character, Noonan tells the story of Frances Green, who was an 83-year-old woman who lived by herself on Social Security just outside of town in San Francisco. says that she had little money, but for eight years she'd been sending $1 a year to the Republican National Convention. One day, Frances got a Republican National Convention fundraising letter in the mail. It was a beautiful piece on thick, cream-colored paper with gold and, and, and black lettering and invited the recipient to come to the White House to meet President Reagan says that she never noticed a little RSVP card that suggested a positive reply needed to be accompanied by a generous donation. She thought she'd been invited because they appreciated her $1 a year support. So Frances scraped up all the money that she could. She took a four-day train ride across America. She couldn't afford a sleeper, so she slept sitting up in her seat. So she got to the White House, a little elderly woman with white hair, white powder all over her face, white stockings, an old hat with white netting, and an all-white dress, now yellow with age. How's that for a word picture? 
When she got up to the guard at the gate and gave her a name, however, the man frowned, glanced over his official list, and told her her name wasn't there and that she couldn't go in. And this lady was brokenhearted and began to walk away. A Ford Motor Company executive who had heard the commotion of all the stuff that was going on called her over to him and asked her what was happening and he listened to what she had to say. And realizing that something was wrong, he talked to her and said, hey, return at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and meet me here. And she agreed. It says, in the meantime, he made contact with Ann Higgins, a presidential aide, got clearance to give her a tour of the White House and introduce her to the president. And Reagan agreed to see her, quote, of course. Well, the next day was anything but calm and easy at the White House. Ed Meese had just resigned. There had been a military uprising abroad. And Reagan was in and out of high-level secret sessions. But Francis Green showed up at 9 o'clock full of expectation and enthusiasm. The executive met her, gave her a wonderful tour of the White House, then quietly walked her by the Oval Office, thinking maybe at best she might get a quick glimpse of the president on her way out. It says members of the National Security Council were coming and going. High-ranking generals were coming in and out. In the midst of all this hubbub, President Reagan glanced out and saw Francis Green. With a smile, he gestured her into his office, and as she entered, he rose from his desk and said, Francis, those darn computers, they filed up again. If I'd known you were coming, I would have come out there to get you myself. He invited her to sit down, and they talked leisurely about California, her town, her life, and her family. The President of the United States gave Francis Green a lot of time, more time than he had. Some would say it was a time wasted, but for those who, who say that, they don't know Ronald Reagan, according to Peggy Noonan. He knew this woman had nothing to give her, but she needed something he could give her. And so he, as well as that Ford executive, took time to be kind and compassionate. I don't know about you, but sometimes my life is going so fast that I miss people around me that need something from me. I do. And sometimes we're just going so fast. And then oftentimes, too, we're, we're so afraid. And the reason we're afraid is because we hear of the person who pulls over to help the person broken down on the freeway and they get carjacked or they get mugged or they get murdered. And so we've been trained in our culture now just to drive straight ahead and with blinders on and hoping that nobody needs anything because we're really afraid to stop and to do something about it. And besides that, we're really too busy anyway. And, you know, I got my plate's full and I got enough people in my life and I just can't handle anymore. See, a mature person realizes that, you know what? They're never too good and never too busy to meet the needs of people around them. I learned that from my wife. She would die if she ever had to come up here and speak. You know what the number one fear most people have is public speaking. Death ranks seventh. <laughs> Little do they realize that if you don't do a good job, that could be one and seven all at the same time. <laughs> but there's a guy who lives, he's a homeless guy. And he lives who knows where. But he likes to hang out at a Kentucky Fried Chicken on Tustin Avenue in Orange, across from the Orange Mall. And he's there on a regular basis. And we don't go there all that much, but uh, one of the things that, that I'm guilty of and have been guilty of, and I don't know what I'm going to do about it, but if I'm going to grow up, I need to deal with it. And that is that, you know, I, I, I feel awkward looking at people who are in situations like that. You know, people that are walking around the mall that are mentally retarded or whatever, you know, you kind of just feel awkward. You don't know what to say. You don't really want to say anything. And, and so you just kind of like, you know, mind your own business. That's the justification for all of it. So here's this guy. He sits there and... And he's homeless, and it's definite, and he looks it and smells it. But my wife preached a year's worth of messages on what it means to be kind-hearted when she went with my daughter to go pick up food once and bought him a meal and took it to him. You know, how many sermons do you need to preach, or how many messages do you need to preach? That, that one act of kindness is, is what it's all about. You got two jackets, you give one away. I mean, that's what Jesus said. It's simple. This isn't hard stuff. It's just a matter of whether we want to be obedient or not, whether we want to grow or not, whether we want to become more like Christ or not. We're alive spiritually, and the reason I know I'm alive spiritually is because, you know, I sense that, and I have a, a yearning to do something about it, and before I could have cared less, and I would have said they deserved it, and they were probably there for their own reasons, and he's probably a junkie anyway, so whatever. But now there's this sensitivity to spiritual things, and we go, okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do about this? And he just wants us to be aware that there are times where we need to be kind-hearted. And Jesus 
felt compassion. And his compassion moved him to action. That's all it comes down to. Move me to action. Then I'm growing. Be humble. Maybe that's what it's all about. Humility of mind. Let each of you consider one another more important than yourself. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2. Considering others more important than ourselves. Isn't that what maturity is all about? Maturity is all about considering others more important. Maturity begins to grow when you can sense your concern for others outweighing your concern for yourself. Be humble. Also says, be forgiving. In that passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 again, we, we realize that, you know what it says, and not returning insult for insult. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. What is he saying here? To be forgiving. How do I measure my growth? I'll tell you how I do it. Am I willing to forgive people who have hurt me? Or do I want to return insult for insult? Or do I want to get even with that person for what they did? Am I going to sit around and figure out some way to get even with them and in some way that they're going to have to pay for what they did? Jesus didn't do that. As He hung on the cross, it says, you know what? He didn't return evil for evil. He didn't return insult for insult. He didn't return... As they reviled Him, He did not revile in return. But what did He do? He kept entrusting Himself to God who judges righteously. Wow. Isn't that what this is all about, folks? To get to the point in our life where as we grow spiritually, we realize this. Life's not fair, but God is. And I'm going to turn it over to Him and trust Him. God, you know this person's trying to hurt me. God, you know this person's stabbing me in the back at the office. God, you know this person's doing the things they're doing and setting me up. And you know all this is going on all around me. And I'm going to have to respond. I'm going to have to react. And I'm going to have to cover my bases. I'm going to have to take matters in my own hands. And He says, no, you aren't. You're going to trust Me. And I'm going to show you how powerful I am. That's when we know we're grown up. You knew we'd get to this one. And we're running out of time, but I want to touch base with that on anyway. Because one of the greatest evidences of spiritual growth in our life is to get to the point we can control our speech. We can control our tongue. The book of James says that the tongue is an evil force. That you need to bridle it. You need to control it. And you know what's interesting about this is God throws it back on us. Chuck, you are alive spiritually and I will give you the power and the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control and I'm saying to you, you have the responsibility to control your tongue. You show me a person who controls his tongue and stops lying, the check's not in the mail if it's not in the mail. You show me a person that controls his tongue. You show me a person who doesn't lie. You show me a person who doesn't gossip. You show me a person who doesn't slander. You show me a person who doesn't use swearing to communicate some type of thought. You show me a person who isn't doing coarse jesting, the Bible says, which basically is talking dirty or telling dirty jokes. You show me a person that's controlling their tongue, and I'll show you a person that's well on their way, their path to growth spiritually. And here's what you hear people say all the time about this. That's just the way I am. Let me tell you something. That may be the way you were, and that may be the way you act, but that is not who you am. If you're a child of God, if you're alive spiritually, you can't use that as an excuse anymore because God gives you the power of His Holy Spirit to control your tongue if you would just do it. Wow, what an evidence of a spiritual change in a person's heart and growth along the way. People that would swear and scream and yell out of rage at one another that can now sit sensibly and talk to each other, that don't have to use dirty words to communicate their thoughts but can express them in ways that are pleasing to God. Show me a person that doesn't tell dirty jokes anymore when that's all they knew before, and I'll show you a person alive spiritually and is on their path to growth. Control your tongue! Grow up! How you doing? Pursue peace and to be pure. That's it. There's the checklist. Isn't that good stuff? Be harmonious. You committed to growth? Be harmonious. What's that mean? Get along with people that are different than you. Agree to disagree. Support them in their efforts. And encourage them in what they want to do. And as God leads them, and if you don't want to be a part of it, then get out of the way and don't stop them. Just get along with people. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. 
feel with other people. Develop friendships, affectionate friendships that, you know what, you're available anytime someone needs you. Be humble. Considering others more important than yourself. Be forgiving. Give it up. Lay aside the revenge and the vengeance and all that goes with it. And God, I, I turn this over to you. I don't want to deal with it anymore in my life. It's behind me and forgetting what lies behind. I press on now to the call of the upward, the call of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's my goal. That's where I'm heading. Be controlled in your speech. Think about what you say before you say it. Think about what you say at work and how it reflects on your Christian testimony to people around you. Think about what you say at athletic events as you sit there and people around you who may have heard or know that you're Christians and they listen to everything that comes out of your mouth. Think about what you say before you say it. Are you a person that builds people up or destroys them? Is that unwholesome words that come out of your mouth or words of encouragement and kindness and love that build people up around you? Think about what you say. Control your speech. And I'll tell you what, and that's tough. I, in a construction industry, man, I'll tell you, I had a rough week this week. And I had to think a lot and pray a lot before I opened my mouth because I was having a bad week. But you know what? I'm glad to say that I don't have to regret anything that I didn't say, but I was just thinking, and I thank, thank God that he stopped what I was thinking from coming out from my tongue and into the phone. The phone would have probably melted. But be pure and be a peacemaker. Isn't that good stuff? Now, the question you have to ask yourself is this. As you put that chart up against the wall and you back up to it, how you doing? Are you growing? Are you growing? If you're dead spiritually, you need to accept Jesus Christ as the answer for your sins. If you're not growing, you need to take in the Word of God so that you'll grow and be nourished by it. And then once you hear it, you heard it. Now, you have a responsibility. What are you going to do with what you just heard? That's the only way that you'll ever grow up. Father, thank you for this time to be together. God, we thank you for your truth. And it's difficult at times. It's a tough pill to swallow. But God, you know, it's right where we live. And we just thank you that we're not who we were yesterday. And we praise you for who we will be as we continue to grow in your love. And we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Don't forget.